0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Luke chapter 1. As over these next few Sundays of Advent, we'll be spending our Sunday mornings investigating and exploring the Gospel of Luke. And today we're coming to Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 5. And it's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's one of those major narrative events that dominate what's called Luke's infancy narrative. And so you have Luke's infancy narrative covers Luke chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 2. And Luke chapter 1 being one of the longest chapters in the entire Scripture Luke packs a lot of information relating to the prophecy of the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, and its historical and political context as well. And so all of that we'll be investigating over these next few weeks together. And so we're coming to look at the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Luke chapter 1 at verse 5. And after Luke's prologue, the first verse, four verses, he writes in verse 5, At the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren And they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people Prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent. And not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was complete, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. A few Wednesdays ago to a Bible study class, I told them that one of my lasting and favorite memories of Christmas was when I was about seven or eight years old. And I have a distinct memory of rushing down the stairs with my older brother, older sister, younger brother and sister, rushing into the living room and under the tree were piles of presents. My older brother, being a little quicker, was a few steps ahead of me. He got to them first. He pulled out a long gift-wrapped present. He unwrapped it and held up this wonderful sword. And I thought, whoa, look at that. And I instantly broke one of the Ten Commandments by coveting right there on Christmas morning. And, of course, I also went under the tree, pulled out my first gift, and it wasn't long and thin, it was pretty square, and I pulled off the wrapping, and it was a jigsaw and my jigsaw puzzle, and my heart fell. It was just so disappointed. I looked at it and thought, I got a jigsaw puzzle, and he got a sword. And then, of course, I noticed other gifts with my name on them, and then I delved into them, and sure enough further under the tree was a sword and my brother and I played Robin Hood and his Merry Men all day long and King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table it was a spectacular Christmas and as you can hear I'm still a little excited about it it was just so much fun now as a seven or eight year old having a jigsaw puzzle was a little disappointing I had no appreciation of jigsaw puzzles then But now, of course, as an adult, I quite enjoy them. And I would have to say that someone in my household is about to get a jigsaw puzzle this year. And it's going to be a toughie, because that's a pretty hard jigsaw puzzle to put together. And so uh, I'm glad to say it's not me, but the lady involved will have a lot of fun putting it all together. It will be challenging and take a significant amount of time, of course. And whenever you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you quite naturally open up the box, you pour out the pieces on the table, you then begin to separate them into different categories. You begin to look for the four corner pieces and the pieces with the straight edges. And once you separate them into different groups, you then begin to look for similar colors and shapes and themes. And as you do that, you are mentally beginning to make an assessment of how will all of this fit together. And over these next three Sundays together, that's exactly what I want to do with Luke's gospel. I want to take the various component parts, separate them out, and then look for the corner pieces The pieces which, as you look at, are the main parts of the infancy narrative in these first couple of chapters. And then we begin to look at the different images, motifs, the way Luke has colored his narrative, how it fits together. And as you do, you'll begin to see continuity of themes running through his gospel story. You'll begin to see similarities and contrasts. You'll begin to see the point and the purpose of each literary unit and how it relates to others and the emerging picture as it begins to become a reality before our eyes. And the other interesting dynamic is this. That the more we explore Luke's gospel, the further we investigate it, what you will discover is this. That you will enter into what students of literary structure call a symbiotic relationship between the reader and the author. And you will discover that it's almost as if Luke is inviting you into the gospel. It's almost as if he's saying, come and stand in the shadows and watch and listen as the infancy narrative unfolds. And that's exactly what he does in this first narrative or literary unit of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, there are several things you need to know about Luke before we get into the narrative itself. And the first is this. Luke, as a writer, begins, as most of you know, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, with a prologue. And his prologue is verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bible open, you will see it simply says, introduction. And those first four verses are, in fact, in the original Greek, a single sentence look at it and imagine it as a single sentence it is the most carefully constructed stylized Greek to be found anywhere in the New Testament and if you were reading this for the first time in its original language you would look at it and by the time you got to the end of this opening sentence your only response would be wow This is an impressive piece of writing. Because Luke begins by telling us, notice what it says. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And there Luke is referring to Mark and other gospel writers. Not necessarily Matthew and John, but many others had written as well. Matthew, Mark and Luke have survived. But here is Luke saying others have written this. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were, and notice what? What he says, From the first, I witnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been written. And so Luke is writing to Theophilus. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. It probably meant that Theophilus was a Gentile, very likely someone in authority, a Roman. And Luke, New Testament scholars tell us, is most likely a Gentile writing for us, the Gentiles. And they suggest he's a Gentile because he often explains Jewish customs and feasts and festivals. He minimizes uh, Jewish descriptions and explains for us, the Gentiles. And so in doing so, Luke is also saying, pay attention, what you're about to read has been written in a manner, manner that is thorough, it is accurate, And it's laid out thematically in order. And so as Theophilus reads it, Theophilus would have the same experience we would have because we can't wait to see what's coming next. And finally, there's one additional point that it is worth remembering. But Luke, as far as we can tell, the best evidence we have, of course, is Scripture itself suggests that Luke, as a writer, had a medical background. And in Colossians chapter 4, we read our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And so, in saying that, we see someone who had a good intellect. We know that by the first four verses. We know he was thorough. We know he was historical. And we know, as he said, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. But more than that, he was also a historian and with this I'll try and wrap up our introduction and we know he was a historian for this reason because he often would write about the historical and political context of the day and we see it in Luke chapter 1 verse 5 that opens our passage this morning in the time of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah now why does Luke say that Why doesn't he simply say there once was a priest named Zechariah? Or why doesn't he write once upon a time? Because he wants to ground what he is saying in a historical context. And Luke is writing about real people in real places at real times. And so he highlights Herod king of Judea. And then in chapter 2 he opens with the words, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then he adds, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And again you see the historical political backdrop. And then as he opens chapter 3, he lays out a historical foundation again. And notice what he says. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And what Luke is telling us is this, I have been accurate in my research i have been thorough in my interviews of those who were eyewitness and i want you to know the certainty of what you're about to read and that's exactly what he's doing and finally as you know mark's gospel begins with prophecy because in verse 2 of his opening words he quotes isaiah And Matthew, after he lists the genealogy of Jesus, he focuses on nativity, and especially Mary and Joseph, of course. And then John focuses on eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. And Luke, he nestles everything and grounds it in the solid foundation of history. And so all of that by way of introduction to Luke's Gospel. And so as we come to it this morning, you can be sure and certain of what Luke is saying actually happened to real people in real places at a period in history. And so with thoroughness and accuracy and order, we can gladly investigate Luke's gospel. And so he lays it all out for us. And he introduces us to Zechariah. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the lords and commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was born, and they were both well along in years." And so here is Luke painting the picture. In the midst of all of this unfolding history, we are about to see God at work in a spectacular manner. And please remember the wider context as well. That the Old Testament was complete back here. If you imagine Genesis began there, Malachi finishes here, and then there is 400 years of silence the intertestamental period when nothing was happening. No burning bushes, no prophets to speak forth the word of God. And now God was about to bring to pass his purpose and eternal will in the coming of a Messiah. And it would happen through the most unlikely of people, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And as Luke introduces us to Elizabeth and Zechariah, he's also introducing us to John the Baptist. And he's about to, later on in chapter 1, introduce us to Mary, ultimately to Joseph as well. And one New Testament scholar says this. David Gooding, in fact. He said, Luke strings together wonderful portraits of individuals like a series of iridescent perils, each one beautiful and compelling, but when strung together, we are enchanted by the overwhelming purposes and plans of God. And of course, he's absolutely right. And we see it right here, beginning with Zechariah. Now, please remember what's going on here. Not only do you have 400 years of silence, But here is Zechariah, who was one of 18,000 priests on duty that morning. And he is chosen by lot to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And imagine there is a large curtain right in front of the chancel area there. And he is invited to go in behind the curtain. Offer up sacrifice and incense. And the people gathered outside. And if you want to imagine in your mind. Out in the street they would be gathered. In hundreds upon hundreds of people. Waiting for the smoke to rise up. Heavenward. And at that point they would know Zechariah. Had been praying for God's purpose and will. And fulfillment and the consolation of the people of Israel. But the only problem was this. It didn't come. Because inside, in the Holy of Holies, in that once-in-a-lifetime privilege, Zechariah is spoken to by Gabriel. And Gabriel says to him, Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son. You will name him John, and he will be great among his people. And the Holy Spirit will be upon him. And he will prepare a people for God. The Messiah is coming. Now allow me to ask you to do this. Come with me in your imagination. Stand in the Holy of Holies that morning with your back against the wall. Watch it all unfold. And imagine what Zechariah was thinking. Because Gabriel says to him, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. I wonder if Zechariah in his mind thought, which prayer? Just for a flash, just for a moment. Because I suspect many, many years ago, When Elizabeth and Zechariah were first married, probably praying for a family, and as years went on, had they given up praying, knowing that nature had determined otherwise, and therefore they had simply settled down and thought, God will never give us a child? And Elizabeth thinking, What have I done? Why is God punishing me in this way? And in those days, when a lady was born, it was considered as if somehow there was some kind of hidden sin in her life or in the life of her husband, and this was God punishing them. The very opposite was the truth and fact, but that was the popular misconception. And I wonder how often Elizabeth and Zechariah had prayed for a child. And now at last, one had come. Was that the first thought in Zechariah's mind? Was Zechariah thinking of the prayer he had officially and very formally offered up to heaven on behalf of the people of Israel seeking God's peace and blessing and the consolation upon a nation? Was that the prayer that had been answered? And in fact, Gabriel goes on to say both prayers have been heard. And Zechariah You're about to have a son. So here's my question What if it was no longer you standing in the shadows? What if you were right there in front of the altar of incense and Gabriel had said to you, Your prayer has been answered? How would you respond? Would you immediately move to an act of devotion and adoration and say, Father, thank you. We are thrilled, excited. We could not see this coming. We can't imagine what it will be like to have a wee one in our home. Is that how you would have responded? But it's not how Zechariah responds. Zechariah's mind, he's trying to calculate what has actually happened. This overwhelming, unsettling, unnerving experience causes him to say, this can't happen. My wife Elizabeth is well advanced in years. How can this possibly be? This is never going to happen. Here is my question. Was it the case that Zechariah had become comfortable In his faith. He was comfortable administering blessings and prayers in a formal setting in the temple. He was comfortable praying on others' behalf. He was comfortable with an Old Testament, which was a long, long, long time ago. And what seemed like. A country far, far away. And as long as Zechariah could domesticate the things of God, as long as it was taking place to a previous generation, as long as it had taken place back then, but God at work now in His life, Changing him, challenging him, opening him up to his rule and reign, asking Zechariah to be open to his rule and reign and submit his life to him. That's a whole different thing. Zechariah was now seriously uncomfortable. How could this possibly happen it was absolutely fine as long as it was in some silent night in the deep, deep midwinter. But now, today, in the contemporary world, Zechariah was not so sure. And how could this be? And he treats it with skepticism. And he's cynical, in fact. Zechariah was about to step outside and pronounce the greatest of all blessings upon a nation and it would have been the emptiest of all formalities. My question this morning is this. Over these next three weeks together, as we begin to make our descent towards Christmas Day and all of the joy and the celebration and the overwhelming wonder of the Incarnation. Will you be comfortable settling down with the sense that as long as it was long, long ago in Bethlehem, as long as it was one silent night or in the deep midwinter, as opposed to delighting in today, rejoicing in today, thrilling in life transforming today, formality in tradition, sentimentality is one thing, intimacy is something else entirely. And so let me leave you with three brief headings as a conclusion this morning. And these three brief headings will also be our conclusion next Sunday morning and on the final Sunday of Advent as well. And they read like this. Number one, Zechariah had nine months to think about what had taken place. And He learned very quickly that you can trust Him while you wait. Whatever you're facing this morning, whatever situation, circumstance, challenge is coming your way, whatever you're uncertain about, you can absolutely trust Him while you wait. And dare I suggest this, and I've mentioned this in the past, but it seems apropos this morning, that when God is at work in our lives, and we are waiting, we are often so focused on the waiting and the perceived delay, we cannot see what He is doing. Because please hear me when I say this, He's not focused on the delay, He's not focused on the seeming period of waiting. He's focused on you. He's focused on you. And asking, are they trusting me while they wait? That's the issue. We are caught up in the why is he not answering? Why is he not giving now? And his focus is on us. Because please hear this. Who you are is so much more important than anything you will ever do for him. Because out of who you are comes what you do. And secondly, learn to embrace The uncertainty. Now that's awfully hard for Presbyterians to do. Because we like schedule and order and everything in order and decency. We like committees and subcommittees and task force and groups who can sit down and plan and participate and know exactly where we're going and what's happening. We like to be in charge. But Zechariah discovered that morning he was not in charge. He wasn't even remotely in charge of what was taking place. And he was learning to embrace the uncertainty. Why? Because he was learning to trust him while he waited. And third and finally, who are you becoming while you wait? Remember moments ago I said we're focused on the delay. We're focused on why things are not happening when we want them to happen. And God is focused on who you are becoming. And could it be that this Advent season... Your focus needs to be on a deeper intimacy with Him and a refining and shaping of your character and nature and motivations and desires so you become more Christ-like in this season. And you learn to trust Him while you wait. You learn to embrace the uncertainty and pass it over to Him. And finally... Focus not so much on the event of waiting for something, but rather, Father, who am I becoming? The individual of integrity and authenticity, person of prayer and faith, someone who trusts you. That's exactly what is going on here. Zechariah would never be the same again. He responded with cynicism and sceptical manner. And God, in fact, took his voice and he was struck dumb for the next nine months as he learned the importance of trusting while he waited, embracing the uncertainty, and finally focused on who God had called him to be. May that be our experience this Advent season. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful narrative in Luke chapter 1. Father, may we in this coming week spend these days in the gospel of Luke, learning more of you, moving away from the formality of religious belief to intimacy with you, the living God. Father, may this waiting period of Advent be a transformative experience for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.